0: This is No Small Parts. No okay. Small part. No Small part. This is No Small Parts. I am Brittany Brewer. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Polly. I know I reached out to you what feels like forever ago, but there's been so much... Happening. This is Polly Rose
1: Edelstein. Um, yes, I am thrilled to be able to do it, even in this, uh, as my mother-in-law calls it, the new now. Not the new normal, but the new now.
0: <laughs> Polly is a freelance theater director, teaching artist, and administrator. Um, there's so much I admire about the Philadelphia Women's Theatre Festival, and I know we'll land there a little bit more later in our conversation. On today's episode of No Small Parts, Polly talks about considering the why of producing, what drew her to the festival model of theater, and the birth of the Philadelphia Women's Theatre Festival. Cheers! But I'd love to hear what your gateway into theater was. Sure. So I, as
1: a young girl, was very involved with choral music, both with my synagogue and in elementary school and middle school. And then in middle school, after doing choir for a year, they started a theater club. And I was like, all right, well, let me try that. And so I did that and I got a little hooked. And then throughout high school, I was involved. Uh, My high school had options for the you know, ninth and 10th graders to be in shows, and then the 11th and 12th to either be in or direct. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. I directed and I also performed in things like you do in high school. And then I went to college, to Stevens College, which is a small all-women's college in the middle of Missouri, and I
0: got a BFA in theater there and a minor in music. For more on BFA programs or the difference between BFAs and BAs in theater, listen to No Small Parts Episode 2 with Hunter Robinson.
1: And I started off very in the performance world. And then as I continued throughout college, started to find that the directing world spoke to me more, both from the like artistic side and from a leadership perspective as well we had a really great class that you could take senior year where you would you would have a buddy and you would both co-direct a one act it was a lot of fun that's cool you went so you went to undergrad in missouri yes yeah, so um, i'm from memphis tennessee originally cool. Cool, cool cool and i went to undergrad in missouri and now i live in philadelphia
0: that's really cool i um i'm also a little bit of a I, I've moved around a bit. Is what drew you to Missouri and then eventually brought you to Philadelphia?
1: Sort of the goofy answer for Missouri is back when I don't know if they still have this for children that are or for you know young adults that're going to college, but they had collegeboard.com, dot com and you would put in, yeah, you would put in all of what you were looking for, or not looking for in a school. And when I put in everything, Stevens was one of the like five that popped up. And I applied to a few in the top five, and I think my very top school, not only did I not get in, but when I went and visited, I was like, oh, no, this is actually not my top school. I then applied to Stevens and got in and had a really wonderful uh, experience in college there.
0: And was it graduate school that drew you back towards the East?
1: So, sort of, but not really at all. I moved to Philadelphia because of a class that I took when I was at Stevens. We had a, it was called the Nuts and Bolts of Theater, where you had to do a research project. You were assigned a city or you were given a city, and you had to research everything from, like, what's the theater like there to how much is a utility bill there. And mine was Philadelphia. The professor had given us a few different options and talked like about what he knew about the different cities. And I researched Philadelphia. I liked it in January 2010. I visited, and I was like, "Well, if I can like this city in January, I can probably like it at any month." Um, and then I graduated from undergrad in May 2010. Packed up my car in August with no place to live, no job, and six nights booked at a hotel. <laughs> and then made Philadelphia home that was all it'll be 10 years
0: this august that is so cool i did you make it did you make this six days work did you were you living in a place <laughs> uh
1: so yes we we ended up in a in a small world of events i The place that I first lived in, Philadelphia, I live a block away from now. I had a a chunk in the middle where I lived in a different part of the city, but now I I could walk to my old house within minutes. Um, (laughs) So I came, I met up with two friends from school who I had convinced that this was a good idea. And so we all stayed in a hotel room for six nights together. It was not a very nice hotel in a sort of morbid, way to share this information i guess there was a years later we found out there was a human trafficking issue at that hotel so it was clearly not the best place for three 21 year old young women to stay but whatever we were fine made it out okay um and then we all got jobs we all We're working,
0: most of us weren't working directly in theater in the beginning. Theater doesn't need to be your full-time job. And if theater isn't your full-time job, you are no less of a theater artist. If producing theater is interesting to you, readings and staged readings can be a great place to start, especially if you have an interest in new plays. So we were doing
1: volunteer theater things and a few like random arts things and going to see a lot of shows and meet people in our early days in Philadelphia Um, And then I worked for two years before going to grad school, and I went to Villanova after two years in Philadelphia.
0: I also love that your college had you take this, like, nuts and bolts class that had you dig into more of the business of being an artist, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, one of the things we had to do was interview a person that lived where we were looking to live so someone who worked in the arts world and our teacher our professor knew a lot of people cuz you know theater is a very small world so once he once we picked our cities he was like oh i know someone you can talk to and the person that i talked to that he'd given me information for i hired as an actor 2 years ago
0: in the festival that's so cool yeah It comes back. It always comes back full circle somehow. Yeah. So that's my,
1: I guess, story of all the different places. And I had a really wonderful time at Villanova, too. I did the Master of Arts in Theater, and they also had a certificate in nonprofit management that you could add on. And that was one of the main reasons that I went. And I had great connections that I made and a whole lot of wonderful things that I learned. And I am a firm believer that you should not pay for grad school. And I was there on a graduate assistantship, which was great. So, yeah. Yeah. That is awesome.
0: When did so? It sounds like you talked about um, sort of living in the performer lens for a bit. Um, when did that shift towards directing and also producing? In a
1: in a way, it shifted during the uh, two thousand eight Obama campaign. I was very involved on the Obama campaign when I lived in Missouri. I would go, I had morning classes, so I'd go to class from 9 to noon, and then I would go sit in the Obama office from like 12.30 until whenever, towards the end. Um, And I really loved the impact that I felt I could make as a leader, and I felt that I was missing that a little bit as an actor. Not that you can't be a leader as an actor, but it was not the easiest way for me to flex that skill. And so I started taking more directing classes in college at that point. I still aud- uh, would audition for things just because, you know, it's college and you want to be in the show because it's a fun experience and because you can learn a lot. But I really realized that this was not um, the path that I probably wanted to be on for the rest of my days. And then I also. We did a show in my school. So I went to a women's college where we had an apprentice program where men could take classes at our school and be considered a student, but they had to work for the school and they had a different tuition structure. I think they actually paid less than we did, but they had to, they were similar to a graduate assistantship where they had to work a whole lot. So I don't know the details and I don't want to like diminish the work that they did, but um, we did a show one year and I was house managing. And it was a show where there were more men than women in it. The women's parts were good, but there were more men than women in it. And it was opening night, and I was up there about to do my house management speech, and one of my professors was there to do her part for the opening night speech. And she starts to talk, and she's like, you know, we really chose this show to highlight the great work that our apprentices do on stage. And I was like, I'm at a women's college. Like, if it can't be all about me here... Where where is it gonna be all about me? And you know, I use all about me as a little bit of a misnomer, but I was just like, oh, I guess I'm gonna have to do this. I'm no one else is going to do this for me for women, so why not me?
0: That's so that's so incredibly interesting too that that was still happening at like an all women's school.
1: Yeah, it's different now. They don't have the apprentice program anymore, and that professor is no longer there. Not by any like bad reason but um I yeah I wonder what it's like these days and I like I said I did have a wonderful time when I was there and I did feel like there were a lot of opportunities for us but I just was so surprised that day that I was like huh all right well I guess it's me
0: did you begin to like dabble in producing or making sort of your own work in college or did that come after
1: most of that came after. So I moved to Philadelphia in August 2010, and I produced a one-act festival in June 2011. I had met a man who had a very small theater in Philadelphia, and I was like, and he did Sunday children's shows at the theater. And I was like, um, I would like to borrow your theater. Why don't I pay you a little bit of money? So that was the the first place that we ever did did that I ever did any sort of like produce
0: Philadelphia and then Philadelphia Fringe Festival. The audio cuts out here a little bit. Polly is talking about the Philadelphia Fringe Festival. For more on the Philly Fringe, listen to No Small Parts Episode 1 with Ange Bay. So I've produced a few times in that with varying levels of
1: success. Some were terrible, which is perfect for fringe, and some were pretty great. Um and then I got to Villanova and at Villanova learned more about the nonprofit side and knew that I really wanted to be producing and doing this kind of work and also knew that I wanted to... And Philadelphia has a lot of theaters and I knew that the theater model is great, but that it's limiting in how many people you can serve, I think. And so the festival model really spoke to me because it gave us the opportunity to include more people
0: and to do more for more. Yeah, yes. When did you um, when did you begin to dabble in reading? So I mean, that's a great question.
1: Uh, so I... With the festival, we've done readings from the very beginning, from our first festival
0: in 2015. Here, Polly is talking about the Philadelphia Women's Theatre Festival, of which she is a co-founder and current artistic director. In
1: college, I would, in grad school, we would be doing readings of people's plays from playwriting and from just general things people had thought of that they wanted to try out throughout school. And even before that, though, there was like a local community theater near where I live, which is still there. It's called the Old Academy Players. It is uh, the, the hype of community theater, which I say that with all the love in the world. Anybody who bashes community theater clearly did not see a fun version of the sound of music in the middle of nowhere kansas when they were a young age and i think that they're worse for it but um my point is there that there was a lot of with the um old academy players they also had a one act festival that i was involved in that was often new works from people written in that they were written by people in the community um and so i got involved with readings there and doing a little bit of the, like, helping with producing. Not certainly they were the pet producers, but... If producing is something that is
0: interesting to you and you have a relationship with folks at a community theater, don't hesitate to reach out and ask to have a conversation to learn more or to potentially ask if you can assist to learn in a low-stakes way. Um, yeah, the biggest, from the beginning of the festival, we knew
1: that readings were what we wanted to be doing because it could be... Uh, launch pad for someone's work to hopefully go to the next stage
0: when you were assisting in producing readings at the players was uh, what was like the highlight was there something that more particular that you picked up yeah. oh gosh I think that it's um
1: one of the things that I learned there was that there is no right or wrong play there were people that got produced that did work that that wrote plays that I would never personally be drawn to, but they got produced and published. And you're, you know now there are plays online at Samuel French or something like that. Samuel French is primarily known for being a leading publisher and licensor of plays and musicals. And that, like I said, there's a community theater in Kansas that read this play about Elvis Presley or about these four... Sister Wives Witches or whatever and they're doing it and so it's the, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to say that there is no bad theater because I don't think that's true, but there's no wrong theater, there's no theater that's wrong for every theater, so if you know, Sister Wives Witches is wrong for 95% of theaters in Philadelphia, there might be a lovely theater in the middle of the country somewhere that this is perfect for their clientele and gets people together in front of a
0: live audience Um, Yeah, so that was one of the things I learned. Can you talk a little bit about the birth of the Women's Theater Festival? Yeah,
1: so my co-founder, Christine, and I went to grad school together, and we did our master's thesis together on the same day. She had written a solo performance piece, a one-woman musical called I Can Dress Myself that I Still Can't Watch Without Crying. And I directed a section from Eurydice, Sarah Rules Eurydice. And we also had a friend who ended up, who wasn't one of the co founders of the festival, but had been, but was part of our early staff and is on our board now, Lauren. And she had a solo piece that was also being presented as her master's thesis. And so we all did this over a weekend, and everybody's piece was very woman empowering and very moving and meaningful and personal, and you do your master's thesis, and then you're done, and I was like, oh, this work will never exist again. Why not, like, or why not a version of some of this, and so I thought for a while, and Christine tells the story kind of better than I do, but I apparently said to Christine, I'm going to think of a, a way that we can be doing stuff like this again and that we can continue to be doing this kind of work. Um, I do remember I invited Christina out for happy hour in November, and this is 2014. So in November of 2014, and I was like, how about a festival? And she was like, how about a festival? Sounds great. And I was like, cool. So it'll be two weeks long for our first year. It'll cost $5,000 and we'll do it in August. And this was November of 2014. And she's like, it'll be two days long. It'll cost $15,000 and it'll be in March of the following year. Um, so Christine and I have learned to work together really well as this is the button of this story in a lot of ways because we balance each other out. The first festival was that August. It was four days long and it was somewhere in between with the money. But um, yeah, it was <laughs> it's uh, Christine is an excellent partner to be working with the festival and i couldn't do it without her for sure Um, but that is how it started we then had other members of people that we knew from grad school that joined us in different roles we did what we called brain trusts where we would bring together people and throw all these ideas we were thinking of and see what stuck um we've done some of those throughout the years actually to like figure out where we are and where we should be going And then we got, we were fiscally sponsored
0: through Fractured Atlas for many, many years. Fractured Atlas is an organization that helps provide fundraising tools to artists, projects, and organizations, with the primary tool being fiscal sponsorship. To clarify the definition of fiscal sponsorship, Fractured Atlas shares that fiscal sponsorship allows folks without tax exemption to use some of the benefits of a 501c3 status to raise funds and execute projects as long as their work furthers the mission of the nonprofit. For more on Fractured Atlas and fiscal sponsorship, visit their website at www.fracturedatlas.org. And we got that set up, and then we launched in...
1: Do we launch March or April of 2015? We made a big announcement that here we are. And I think it was a early April. We took submissions and had a really quick turnaround. Our first year we had over hundred submissions of new plays and we did two readings, one main stage production that we produced, which that was very hard for our first year. And then some other people's works that we presented and had a festival
0: that's amazing that's a that's a first year that's-
1: yes we've since our scale changes every not every year but our, our scale has changed year to year so like our second year we didn't produce any big um show but we did more readings and more presented work our third year we produced a nine person musical um which was wonderful and also maybe something that I would never do again as as, as long as this is a part time position for all of us I don't know if I could do it again uh, and then, then we've just oscillated between what speaks to us and what speaks to whatever theme we
0: choose over the years. That is so cool. In terms of in terms of producing, um, how uh, what sort of roles are you more focused on and how do you all divide the different kinds of roles among each other?
1: So we have been able to expand as staff over the years, and while our staff is very part-time and stipend paid, still at this juncture, we have all been able to fill roles well. So Christine and I still are the heads of the organization. Christine is our managing director, is really making sure that she's taking the wide vision of the company, specifically from the management side, and is managing our board and managing our staff largely, specifically the staff that are more under her, for lack of a better way of saying that, and keeping a a strategic eye on how we can grow responsibly and what we should be doing. Um, Anne is our development director, so she's the one that's leading the financial charge and making the dollars come to us. And then in the artistic world, I am trying to make sure that We are connected with as many different and diverse artists as possible, and that we are current, for lack of a better word, in what the in what work is being produced. Not that we're ever going to like, you know, do the vagina monologues or whatnot. No shame to people that do that either, but just making sure that we're you know keeping the 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 eye on the pulse of the artistic world. And I work a lot with our artists. I do a lot of our casting and a lot of our hiring of other artists. And then both Christine and I serve as ambassadors, I would say, of the festival. Just the people that when people have questions or when it's time to go more into detail about our hopes and dreams and vision, that we are the ones that are sharing that out and making sure. Because sometimes, especially when we are all very part time and we're, you know, very small stipend paid also if we don't raise money it's the raise enough money the first stipends that go are christine's and mine which is i mean we didn't pay ourselves i think until year four anyway um but that we are navigating that world as as best as possible
0: have you all have you all had a board sincere one
1: we had an advisory council, cool. um, and then when we became a 501c3, we transitioned it to a board. Cool. And we've got our 501c3 in September.
0: Would you be, would you talk about one of the most memorable experiences you have producing a reading or a staged reading?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, um, silly, not silly, but it's fun and it's another christine story so christine is an amazing human and is like i said had written a one-woman musical which we did in our very first festival we then in 2016 the dnc was in philadelphia and they did broad street stages i think is what it was called they were looking for people to perform outside on broad street and um you know, it was July is when the DNC was, and so we're, it's warm outside. We're in the thick of festival planning, but it seemed like too good of an opportunity to say no to. So I talked with Christine, and we decided that even though she had done her one-woman show the year before, she would do a snippet of it for the outdoor stages. And, I mean, outdoor stage is a, a little bit of a misnomer. It was a, under a pop tent on a corner, Uh, And she brought her entire set, which is a clothesline and some other tools. And she also has a pianist because it's a musical. And on top of all of this, at this juncture, performing outside on Broad Street in July, she was six months pregnant. So it was a lot of fun to be part of this process with Christine, who was six months pregnant, performing her one-woman show that I was helping produce and that i could be you know a part of and to also be a part of this larger movement that was happening and with all these other artistic people that were out on the streets performing and yeah it was a whole lot of fun
0: that sounds so cool (laughs) was that was it a was it oh it was a one performance right yes so we
1: are i think we performed twice but it was just one just christine's show
0: have there um as you've continued to produce readings and staged readings are there any challenges that have come up that have been unexpected
1: yeah i mean every year every year <laughs> there's always challenges so there's rewarding ones we in our second year we partnered with the Philadelphia Asian Performing Artist Group here and the um We went to the the co-producers of that group and we are like, cool, who's an Asian-American woman playwright in Philadelphia? And one of them said, oh, there really isn't one right now. So they went to New York and they found a playwright they'd worked with. And that, along with many other things, but that conversation, I believe, inspired one of these two producers to start working as a playwright and to develop her playwriting voice. So that's a big win. Um, In the world of, oh, it was hard that we didn't have a local playwright because that was important to us, but now this young, this this playwright writes for many theaters across Philadelphia. Um, And then what else? Let's see, not last year, two years ago, our theme for the festival was Motherhood in the Arts. And we had a play where one of the characters was a mother who was also queer and it was you know defined by the playwright and we wanted to have that be the actor to to try, sort of, try to find a woman who was an actor in philadelphia who was a mother who was in some sort of lgbtq relationship and so trying to find someone that fit that for lack of a better word was you know i can think of a dozen women who are mothers who are actors. But when you add in another piece of a Venn diagram, it's always a little bit harder. And we had that with a couple other roles too. Like one was a role for a woman who was a mother who was half black and half white. And it was very important that that person embody that role as you know specifically described. We ended up, once again, finding a woman who was black, who was a mother, but was married to a man who was white. And so she had her own biracial children. So it was very and the playwright thought she was great. And it was very moving for her to be able to do this piece because she was hesitant at first. She was like, I'm not biracial. But when she read the play and saw the, like what the crux of the play was about raising, the play was about raising a biracial child. And the woman played the child from age um i don't think i'm gonna get this i don't remember all the details of this play but the mother was like in her 40s and had a seven-year-old and the woman plays the seven-year-old grown up in her like 20s or 30s and so to be able to embody that through the lens of having her own biracial children even though we didn't have an actor that you know dotted all the i's and crossed all the t's it was very much still there um Yeah, so those are, uh, casting is occasionally hard. (laughs) Casting is often hard. And then just also, we're a small organization, and we all work other jobs. And so finding people that are flexible enough to understand what that means has been a challenge over the years. And we've gotten better at it, and we've been able to hire people to help us to make our lives easier. But really trying to serve and support artists while not overextending ourselves and not dropping any of the many balls that are in the air has been a challenge over the years that we've navigated.
0: Has your space changed over the years?
1: Yeah, Philadelphia's a funny place. There's not a ton of theaters that, well, I mean, I guess there's quite a few at this point, but that have, like, there are more theaters that don't have a space than do. So we, our first year, we're at Asian Arts Initiative, which is in um, the north part of Chinatown at near 12th and Vine, and that was a very cool artsy space. It is great for film. They do a lot of films there, I think. For our first year as a stage space, it was great. I didn't think that we wanted to be somewhere like that forever, though. So then for two years we moved to University of the Arts, which is a large school here in Philadelphia. Our first year there, we were an artist-in-residence or an organization-in-residence, so we had a terrific discount <laughs> on the on the main space, which was wonderful. And then um the person that we worked with to be listed as an organization in residence wasn't there our second year there and so we ended up having to pay a bit more uh which wasn't which was fine for that year but wasn't going to be like long-term financially feasible for us so then year four for the motherhood and the arts festival we moved to this lovely little studio actually not far from uarts called music theater philly and they do children's education and that was very important for us because for every with the theme of motherhood in the arts, for every reading that we did that was an adult reading, we had children's programming happening in the basement. This is a very
0: cool thing and brings up a great question. What kind of space might best serve the play reading you are looking to produce and the themes of the play?
1: So we had two studio spaces, uh, and that was great. You could hear during the readings for about 15 seconds, there was a time where there was a countdown, for a rocket ship to blast off and then cheering afterward. So every reading, there were 15
0: seconds where we heard a countdown from 10 to one and then the cheering, but that was fine. If you are interested in using a community rental space, it might be worthwhile to ask what other events are scheduled to be in neighboring spaces and what those events entail. And
1: um, then last year we were at the Art and Theater Company which was a wonderful experience. They have the Hamilton Family Arts Center, which has a black box theater in it. And we were planning on being there again this year, but it does not seem to be in the cards for live theater to be happening in very many places this year. So we're pivoting and figuring out the details of what we're going to do. But if we had not had to pivot, we would probably be at the Arden this year and perhaps maybe forever because it's a lovely space.
0: That It's truly... um, The programming you all offered during the Your Motherhood-themed festival was so, so cool to see.
1: It was really a lot of fun. It was wonderful. And, you know, like I mentioned, in the 2016 festival, Christine was pregnant. So once, uh, I guess, what, November, December 2016 rolled around and she had a, you know, one, two-month-old baby, there was very rarely a we ever had again have a baby at it so it seemed like second nature to us at this point of ah yes of course we should be doing this kind of work because
0: this is a a need it's really such an interesting lens and component to producing as well that you all saw that need and just creatively problem solved it and brought another Yes. Yeah.
1: I will say we had a big lift and uh, help and assistance from Rachel Spencer Hewitt, who runs the Parent Artist Advocacy League. She was instrumental in helping us figure out what we needed and what would make the most sense to make a festival run smoothly.
0: Um, and you all are of planning and refiguring for this year's festival as well.
1: Yes, so we are hopeful that come March 2021, we'll be able to gather in person and we can do like a short weekend reading of what we've chosen, but we're also hopeful that we're going to be able to do a virtual component throughout August and September. So we're working with the playwrights, making sure everybody's schedule, I mean, not that anybody I think is overscheduled right now, but making sure that schedules line up and that everybody's on board. And that we can figure out what we need on our end to make the theatrical experience the most successful as possible. But it is likely that we will be doing something in August and September.
0: I don't know if this quite quite works necessarily for your Nuts and Bolts class, but thinking back on that class now with your experience in producing, um, is there anything that you would add to that syllabus if you were guest speaking? That's a
1: really interesting question. And I, it's funny because I think about that class sometimes, but I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. Would I add anything? It was very comprehensive. It was very everything from find all the theaters that are professional to find out where actors, like what bar actors hang out at, to what uh, is the utility bar, uh, utility bill and rent and all of these different things. I think that, and talk to someone that actually lives there was another important piece. I think that every city is different and that Philadelphia is a city where if you have a Philadelphia connection, like you've done an apprenticeship or an internship or you've gone to school or grad school here, you have a little bit more of a leg up. And I felt that, definitely felt that after going to grad school that I was able to, Uh, integrate more into the Philadelphia theater world. But even before I was, even before grad school, I was able to do it. But because I knew someone who lived in Philadelphia and they were doing theater and they had gone to school with me and then had done an apprenticeship in Philadelphia. So like, I think that networking and engaging and what that means would maybe be something I would have gone a little bit more in depth on. But having said that, we did have a component of that with having to interview someone that lived here.
0: If you were going to talk to a young artist who is interested in producing a staged reading or just a reading, um, what would be some things that you suggest they focus in on?
1: I think one of the biggest things that I've learned through my work in theater has been informed by the work I do outside of theater. So I work for a nonprofit running a design-thinking entrepreneurial program. And a lot of, if you're familiar, whoever is listening, if you're familiar, there's the TED Talk, Start With The Why. And it's all about why you're doing what you're doing and thinking large vision and thinking empathetically. And I think that one of the reasons I started a festival was because I don't know if I have the ego to start my own theater company and i think that if you're doing theater because it serves your ego that's not a great reason not that once again not that everybody's doing theater to serve their ego i would say more people are not doing that but i think that your your why you're doing xyz has to come from some sort of like empathetic need and figuring out what that is and i Saw that there were a whole lot of talented women that weren't getting showcased or recognized for their talents, and that the numbers have gotten better over the years, certainly, but that the numbers were not in favor of women as playwrights and directors and pretty much every other design category, maybe minus costuming. And I thought that was wrong. Um, I, like I've said, I'm a director, but I did not direct the main stage production that we, any, I've never directed a main stage production for the festival. And I've directed in our five festivals we've had, I think I've directed three times just because sometimes it made much more sense for me to be a producer, to be facilitating that. Why? That, why are we here? Why are we doing what we're doing to create opportunities for women in theater and creating opportunities for women in theater doesn't mean every year I direct And I, that would be what I would say, anybody producing a reading somewhere, why are you doing this? And making sure that you're doing more good than not good, which is usually the case.
0: Is there anything you would highlight um, in terms of like some of the administrative stuff you do now that you would have never thought about 10 years ago, mostly in theater, mostly in terms of producing readings for the festival? I think that there's
1: just a lot of organizational structure you have to build for yourself, and I think a lot of theater people are not organized people, and I think I'm one of them. Uh, I don't naturally skew towards being organized, and being a director, often you have had to go through the trenches of stage management, and that is, when I say trenches, I mean I have nothing but
0: respect for stage managers because I'm not a very good one. For more on stage managers, listen to No Small Parts, Episode 7, with Bryant Edwards. And that is
1: a world where those most stage managers I know are some of the most organized people. If you're going to be a producer, you also have to be one of the most organized people. And I think a lot of producers are often arts people. They're directors. They're actors. They are visionaries. And so I would say get very organized or partner yourself with someone who is very organized. Christine and I work very well together because she is someone who's very good at dotting her eyes and crossing the T's. And I am someone who is like, Oh, what a great big idea. What a great big vision. Let's go try this. And she's the one that's like, cool. I agree. And what do we have to do to get there? Oh. Yeah. So I think that organization is one of the biggest things that I've learned on the job and also delegation, like get a good group of people that can help you. Your people are the most important part of producing anything. It doesn't I mean, more so than what you're producing, who you're working with, I would say is equally if not more important.
0: Yes. Um how and you and you all have probably like accrued some folks on your on your journey as well. How has your role shifted from when you and Christine sort of founded this festival to having more folks on board now?
1: It's been great in a lot of ways. We've just been able to lean on other people who we trust and who have a shared language. I think in the early days, it was like we have rehearsed in my living room and when we did the musical, I was we had like three different rehearsal locations and the stage manager didn't have a car. And we didn't have a full-time production manager. So well, we still don't have a full-time production. We don't have full-time anybody, but we didn't have someone who was in that role for more than like two weeks. So I was like carting an electric piano from place to place to place. And it's the sort of thing that we've moved away from to be able to hire people who can help organize that part. So we can really focus. So Christine can really focus on strategic vision. So I can really focus on the artist engagement Um as opposed to just being exhausted from lugging a piano
0: up a flight of stairs in 90-degree weather. Yes. Um, This may sound silly. How How did you find those other people? So a
1: lot of the people that we have worked with, we've been very lucky because they've come from the Villanova community. We were able to reach back out to the professors and to the staff that we still knew that worked at Villanova and be like, who do you recommend? This is an interesting idea.
0: If you are looking for artists or collaborators, What communities are you or have you been a part of that you could tap into or reach back out to? Our current production manager went through the
1: Villanova program. Our current marketing coordinator went through the Villanova program. Um, We've also hired interns over the years who have then turned into staff members for us. Like Our general manager was an intern for us one year and then really using our networks. And then occasionally, like when we've had interns, they've often come from Philadelphia has a few different job sites for artists that have come from that, and we've been very lucky to have very wonderful people and keep wonderful people
0: over the years. For you, why produce readings or staged readings? I think that,
1: I mean, from a, from a logistics perspective, it is more manageable than doing a full production for us at this juncture. I think beyond that, though, we're looking to be someone's break more so than a lot of other places I think we have been that for people people who have never had a stage reading somewhere that have gotten one through us that have then gone on to have their play go to another stage reading or then they produce it in the fringe and then they become a playwright in a workshop group and they have us on their resume and us as a reference and I think that that's the development piece is what we're really interested in, and being that launch pad, that support for women identifying playwrights has been something that we have been very proud to be. I mean, our favorite stories aren't the stories where, like, you know, we sell out. Our favorite stories are, like I told you, the playwright who'd wanted to fill a void when she saw that there weren't any current uh, Asian American women playwrights in Philadelphia. and Things like that.
0: How has producing complemented or affected the other ways you practice your artistry? Oh, wow.
1: That's a... Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I've directed for the festival readings three times. I've directed outside of the festival a number of times doing different things. And I think that... I have become more demanding of myself while also trying to be more patient with others in the work I do um, outside of the festival. And so, and, and even within the festival, because not that I was ever very demanding of people. I don't think I'm a very demanding person, but uh, I think that I would often ask a whole lot of myself, and be like, ah, I'm asking so much of myself, so I can clearly ask this much of someone else, or at least like 75% of this much of someone else, and often that's not how that computes. So I think that it's made me more empathetic, um, and that I am able to have that lens and be more patient in other rooms that I'm in, and in the room with the festival as a director, as a producer, as
0: a artist- do you all have any um, long-term dreams or goals for your readings?
1: I think one of the things that we've talked about, we have so we did a big, not quite a strategic plan, but a big planning session where one of the things that we want to do is to have, not more influence, that's not quite what I mean, but we want to be working with influential people so we can better serve our artists and I think we're very interested in what happens after our artists leave the festival. We've become more and more interested in that over the years and figuring out perhaps some sort of uh, structured pipeline of you do a reading in our festival and then we connect you with X, Y, Z, or then you've got a better chance at this or that um, is something that we want because we don't want to lose touch with all of these different playwrights. And we've, been more or less successful with different playwrights throughout the years with that but I think that is something that we are hoping to move towards more and more of like how to how to expand our influence to better serve uh, serve playwrights beyond when they do their reading with us.
0: I think that's so exciting um, in terms of what you've been talking about so far is that you all have a goal and a mission as an organization that revolves around cultivation and um and being that launching pad and allowing readings to do that in a really vibrant way like what a cool way to utilize readings
1: yeah it's been it's been great i think that you know once upon a time we might have envisioned these larger productions but there's a lot more development that you get to have when you're not trying to put up a show in four weeks
0: would you walk me through sort of the timeline for a development process for the festival
1: yeah so we have our submissions usually at the end of the calendar year before the festival or we're beginning of the calendar year of the festival we choose the pieces and then depending on the year might not happen this year just because of finances and and how the festival is going to be in multiple months but we often partner people up with someone who has some sort of dramaturgical experience that will go through the plays with them. That was especially important for our Motherhood and the Artist Festival just because a lot of those plays were in the early stages of their development. And then we partner playwrights with directors. A lot of local playwrights have um, people that they enjoy working with, and so we will try and accommodate those requests as we're able to. And we encourage our our playwright and directors to be very much teams so and to teams with the goal of serving the work so like it's never our readings are never a time for like a director to really flex xyz muscles as much as it is to sit at the table and to facilitate that discussion and to go over all the like nitty-gritty and to enjoy being part of that process and really i don't mean to say defer to the playwright but really think about their vision the whole time so it can be accomplished and we so we have a couple of rehearsals Um, because it's a reading we don't have a too extensive of a rehearsal process but we'll usually have a few rehearsals beforehand and then a rehearsal in the space and then afterward we will um, do the show and depending on the show we might have supplementary materials and or a talk back so like last year We had a show that was very – it was about sexual assaults, and we brought in a sexual health expert who came and led a talk back afterward, talking a whole lot about, like, what consent looks like. Um, We also, this past year, did a show that is called Badlands, which is about the opioid crisis in Kensington and is also gonna be part of Playpen's festival this year, which is another one of those things that feels like a, not a big win because that playwright clearly is very talented and would have likely been chosen to be part of Playpen even without being in the Philadelphia Women's Theater Festival, but it feels great to see her name there. And we connected with the, um, so the play centers around McPherson Library, which is a library here in Philadelphia. Where are sort of one of the epicenters of the opioid crisis, and so we went to the library and connected with people there and invited the people who the play is loosely based on, and one of them came, which was pretty cool. So um, this is sort of not necessarily artistic development, but development that we're doing beyond the artistic world sometimes.
0: When do your artists come on board, and how long is their schedule specifically?
1: So our playwrights, we hire usually in the early part of the whatever year we're doing the festival. So this year in like January, February of 2020, and then we connect with them and ask them who they are looking for as a director. We're a little behind schedule this year, just because of the world ending a little bit. Um, So usually by May, we have directors in line, the playwrights and the directors will, you know, read the plays again together and they'll make a, you know, dream cast list. And then, option 2 and 3 we try to get people cast by the end of May or early June and then they usually have two or so rehearsals in end of July and then one in the space in early August and then we um have the show. Yeah, just say where where am I in the, in the like world of of schedule. We also have stage managers who are brought on earlier in the process too and they will be involved with the readings, doing all of the wonderful things that stage managers do that I'm not very good at, as as previously mentioned, so.
0: This feels like a question for both your director brain and your producer brain. How do you feel like design lives in readings? Um,
1: Yeah, Yeah, so we're limited in what we can do based on the spaces that we've been in, so we haven't had a whole lot of scenic design, but almost every year we've either either hired a lighting designer or our production manager has quite a bit of experience in lighting. And we've been able to create light looks, which I think is great for readings. I think that generally less is more for readings, but, um, being able to set the mood with light has been something that we've been able to, to lean on. That was especially with the show Badlands, that was especially important because there was the, um, you know, it takes place in the, the fluorescent lights of the library. And there were moments where like each fluorescent was supposed to click off to set a mood. And so we were able to accomplish that. We've also had sound that we've incorporated in readings over the years when it's been necessary and important. Um, and focusing, I think, on those two is really great for setting tone, and um, we've been able to bring in very smart people to make those things happen, especially when we were... we. Not every space that we've been at has had the most comprehensive sound or light board, and one of the places especially that I'm thinking of... The person we brought in was very, very talented because it was a beast of a board and they were able to manage it with great care.
0: You, you started to mention this with sound. Um, have you, I mean, you've worked on a number of readings. Um, do certain readings call for different things or like from a producer brain? Uh, I mean, it sounds like there are some readings where you like this needs sound, like we don't necessarily need special lighting here but for this to breathe in an exciting way
1: yeah i think it also depends on more so than what the reading needs as much as uh, it depends on where the reading is so someone that's written a play that has you know that hit the end and then saved it and sent it to us often they don't need a whole lot of lights or sound they just need to hear their play read out loud Um, Someone who's been working on something for many, many years or, or even many months and has been toying around with a few things and has maybe like had their friends over for dinner and read it out loud. They might be looking for something that sets tone a little bit more to see like how this would work in a next stage. And I think that's one of the things that I really love that we do, that we've had people that just write something and the first time it's ever read out loud is on our stage. And then we also have people who have something that they've been toying with for over a year and then they've heard it in a few other places or pieces of it. And then we do it. And
0: um, like they're much more likely to, I think, need and want a little bit more tech. For more on tech and tech rehearsals, listen to No Small Parts Episode 2 with Hunter Robinson. That's really cool. So, so the playwright's process also impacts how you all sometimes go about producing things. Yeah, I would say uh,
1: it's rare for a director to be like, I must have X, Y, Z, and then it would much more come from conversations with the playwright about what would be important for the play versus the aesthetic.
0: That's neat. Do you all, I mean, you, you sort of touched on this when you went over the timeline. Do you all get sort of a mini extensive opportunity to chat with the playwright before diving into all of this?
1: I don't, so we don't have as much time as we'd like just because we're limited, but I think that we are able to work with our playwrights over a period of months. And then it's great when we're able to work with our playwrights again, years later, um, or where we're able to see, oh, they did a reading with our company and now they are, now it's getting produced in like a sta- a main stage theater. And so we're able to like be part of their journey beyond the few months before the festival.
0: Do you have any final thoughts or advice that you would offer to young artists interested in producing readings?
1: I think that what I said before about leading with empathy and and leading with a very clear vision is important. I think that there is, sometimes there's a saturation of the market of people doing work without a clear vision and I don't fault people because sometimes work has to start off like that and then the vision comes later. And I think I would be a hypocrite if I you know, told people to not produce things because that's what I did. But I would say really thinking about why you're doing what you're doing is important and having that be a very good reason. And not that, not that this is a lot of people's reason what I'm about to say, but I know a few people who you know, they went to school and then they moved to XYZ City and they couldn't, or they would, you know, stay in XYZ City and they couldn't get cast. And so they got some of their friends together and they said, we're going to start a theater company and that's it. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's the strongest reason. I'm not really one to judge, but I think that that's, you know, that's why fringe festivals and pop-up stuff is great. Like do that all the time in that kind of world. Um, but I think if you really, if you want to have a mission, if you want to have a vision, you, mission based work, mission, um, you know, theaters with mission statements that then become nonprofits belong to the public. Once you become a nonprofit, you're no longer just for yourself. You literally belong to the public. You have a board that, you know, is your fiduciary and you belong to something larger than what you probably started as. So not that every theater company has to become a nonprofit and has to have that model. But if you are going to go that way, just realize that you have to belong to something more than your smaller idea, but a larger
0: mission. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Polly. Of course. This was wonderful. That was Polly Rose Edelstein. I am Brittany Brewer. This is No Small Parts. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. You can find No Small Parts on Facebook, No Small Parts Podcast, Instagram, at No Small Parts Podcast, Twitter, at No Small Parts Pod. For more No Small Parts, visit www.nosmallpartspodcast.com.